Well, if you would now, open your Bibles to Jeremiah, back to Jeremiah 17. You know, I'm often reminded when things go wrong, like when we miss a verse or a slide on a song, of how often we do things right. And when something goes wrong, you tend to pay attention. It's like the sound room squad, right? I mean, nobody knows they're there, and then something goes wrong. They miss one cue, and everybody in the room turns and stares at them. (laughs) Makes them feel real cool, like our stares make it better somehow. You know, there's like this cartoonish version of Christians out there that is oftentimes, I don't know, taught and promoted, where Christians basically, they, they don't really encounter uh, real problems, or that we just greet everything with some kind of smile. There's this cartoonish version of Christianity out there that says something like this. This Christian guy, he's nice. He's a nice guy, but... He's simple. You know, he's naive. He doesn't really consider the the big problems of life. He doesn't really go to war with those. He doesn't wrestle with those. Instead, what he does is smiles a lot and just says, well, God will work it all out. Or, you know, God's will be done. Or God works in mysterious ways. Or God has a plan. And we throw that on there, some trite saying at that point that it can be legitimate, but oftentimes it's the way they would view that type of Christianity as somebody who's not really dealing with what's in front of them. They're not dealing with the elephant in the room, with the cancer that they've just been diagnosed with or their loved one, or the ugly situations that go on around us. There is this version, this understanding of Christianity that is oftentimes promoted, and a lot of times... When we say things, if we are that type of Christian who uses those kind of trite sayings, God will work it out, God works in mysterious ways, and we just say that to people when they're struggling in some deep thing, some deep problem, that tends to have a stifling influence on serious investigation and real thought. But you know, here's the thing. While that is a version of Christianity and the Christian that's out there in our world, I don't find that guy in Scripture. I don't find Christians in Scripture who just kind of smile a lot and don't confront the difficulties of life. Instead, what I find, if, if I'm just even casually looking through the Bible, I run into guys like Joseph. And Joseph might be a great example of what someone might think of, someone who doesn't really seem to be, you know, dealing with the problems of life until you read about his life. And you start to see all that he went through. And then you find out later, after he's finally promoted, after 17 years of awful treatment, he then has sons, and he names them Manasseh and Ephraim. Look up the meaning of those names, and you'll see what I mean. This was a man who struggled deeply with what God was doing. So it's not just Joseph. We also find men like Job. We find men like David. We find Solomon who struggled so severely with the inconsistencies of life that he's the same guy who gives us Proverbs, which tells us general truisms and how life should generally work as you follow him. And then he gives us the exceptions to the rules as he views it all when you come to Ecclesiastes. Same guy, struggling with the realities that he's looking at and what he sees in this world. We also find others, many, many others, But one of the ones that leaps to my mind, of course, is Jacob, the man who's renamed Israel because of his wrestling with God. 
We don't find people who fail to deal with the problems of life. We run into the prophets one after another who is dealing with absolutely awful situations and proclaiming messages that no one wants to hear. And many times to empty audiences. Almost no followers. We come to Jeremiah today and we find the same. And of course, I can't get out of of talking about this particular type of person without speaking of our Savior who is acquainted with grief and sorrows like one from whom men hide their face. We don't find Jesus just smiling through problems. Anything but. We find Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus. We find Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He, he would love to have them draw near, to, to be near him, to come to him, that he might comfort them. But they, we, they just want nothing to do with that. And of course, in the pinnacle of a wrestling match with God, of dealing with the hard issues of life, we have Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Laboring over what it is he needs to do. See, the Christian ought not be that cartoonish version that I first was speaking of, but ought to be the one who doesn't avoid the ugliness of this world or turn a blind eye to the darkness of the human soul. We shouldn't be those that are afraid to look at those things. We shouldn't be those who would be unwilling to go to the 9-11 memorial or go to a Holocaust museum. We should be willing to look at the horrible people, dictators in, in history, like Stalin, who killed probably, on a light estimate, 40 million of his own people. Of Chairman Mao of China, who killed more than 20 million of his own people, easily just in the great leap forward. When he forced, took over the land and forced his people to advance, as it were. 20 million starved to death. And of course, we shouldn't overlook even the nightmare of the Nazis and all that they did. The Holocaust being among that. Did you know that at one point in Stalin's Russia and the USSR, it was illegal to the point of death. It was a capital crime to go out and after the the they had gone through and plowed the uh, fields of wheat after they'd harvest, it was illegal to go up and pick the pieces of grain off the ground. Did you know in Venezuela, to fast forward much more recently, in Venezuela, they had such a high death rate of infants in the hospitals that they decided what they needed to do was instead of pointing out that these children were dying of starvation, what they needed to do was just change the cause of death. And Venezuela, it became illegal to code a child who died of starvation as that. You couldn't say that they died from starvation. So socialism, what it did was, it didn't fix the problem. It just renamed it and tried to hide it, conceal it. In America, we've killed over 60 million of our own children. And we call it abortion. We as Christians should not be those who avoid these grim realities of history. And this is just the 20th century that we're speaking of. We shouldn't be those that are afraid to look at these things. Instead, what we ought to do is say this. What is it that provokes such heartlessness? 
What is it within the heart of man? What is it about our, our condition that makes us capable of such things? And not only that, am I capable of such things? Do I have the potential to do the exact same things that Stalin did? Is that within me? And of course, if I'm reading scripture right, if I'm reading Romans 3 right, verse 10 to 18 there, if I'm reading any of that section right, then the, the answer is a resounding yes. What a hard look in the mirror that is. To know that that is where the flesh will take me. To know that that is where human nature can descend. The Christian ought not be the one who can't deal with these realities. We ought to be the one that instead looks into the abyss of all of that. Looks at that darkness and then is able to say, there is no hope in man. There is no hope to be found in man. In flesh I will not trust, but in God alone, for only he is good. Jeremiah 17, 5, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. Now I can stop there, and I will for a moment. I can stop there, and that could be the summation of the sermon if you're thinking deeply enough about what is happening here and seeking to apply it. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Do you think you trust in mankind? You probably don't. And I don't think the people Jeremiah is speaking to think they're doing that either. If you remember, Jeremiah's main nemesis is a, the leader of the temple grounds, Pasher. And he has the crowds. He has people listening to him. He's saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Because all he's doing is saying there will be peace when war is coming. And not just any war. The army of Babylon... Nebuchadnezzar the Great, one of the greatest conquerors of world history, is coming to their gates. He's coming three different times to decimate the land of Israel. And their leaders, their priests, the prophets are saying, nope, no problem. Peace. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep coming to the temple. Keep showing up. They didn't think they were trusting in mankind. They didn't think they were trusting in their walls. So how is it that we tend to, to put our strength in mankind? Well, do you find more comfort in your doctor's voice or in God's word? If, if the doctor comes to you and he tells you some awful news, do you find more comfort in reading the word of God or if the doctor comes back and goes, nope, sorry, I misdiagnosed you? See, I oftentimes don't think I'm really trusting in mankind and then the stock market crashes. I don't think I'm trusting in mankind. And then I start to wonder America about America. And we're going to be demoted. You can see that. You can see us descending. You can see our footprint in the world lowering. And if you're not seeing that, you're not paying attention. We will descend into the nonsense that we are pursuing. We are pursuing vanity and we will become vain. That is the reality for the United States of America. Now we can get into all kinds of other things. Do people trust more in God or mankind? Well, let's lower the age group here. 
Do you get more excited about getting clicks and likes and shares on Instagram than you do from encouragement from the word and from God's people? Do you find more thrill in that your stocks are rising than you do from hearing of salvation of a lost soul? And on and on we can go. We can dig into our lives if we're thoughtful enough and consider, are there ways in which I am truly trusting in mankind? Do I find my strength there? Young men, do you find your strength in how much you can bench? Or do you find your strength in knowing the wisdom of God? And wisdom will save you a hundred times more than the power of your fists. So we can get into that in a hundred thousand different categories of our lives and then many ways in which we have trusted our own flesh over the power of God. So this verse is profound, even if small. And what does God say of such a person? Cursed. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. The one who puts their trust in mankind isn't able to hold on to God and to the thing they're trusting in in humanity at the same time. It must be one or the other. You cannot trust in two masters. You will either love one and hate the other. And then he goes on further to describe in verse 6 what this curse looks like. He says, for he will be like a, a bush in the desert. And he will not see when prosperity comes. But will live in stony wastes in the wilderness. In a land of salt without inhabitant. Many of us have probably seen these random bushes out in a desert. You've seen pictures of a desert probably, or you've visited various deserts. I don't know, maybe you went to Arizona or Nevada or something like that, and you hung out in a desert for a minute. I don't know your story. I don't know where you've been. But most of us have seen one of these random bushes in a desert. You'll see nothing, and you'll see some cactus or something like that, and then there'll be this random bush. And you're like, what is the point of that thing? How is it surviving? And what, what is its purpose? Right? Now you can watch some nature channel and all that kind of stuff, and you can learn about how some little organisms and stuff and some little animals will feed off it and things like that, but that's not what's really going on here. This is being a metaphor picturing a person out there in the desert. How long do you last? How, how long are you able to be sustained? No, the, the person who has put their trust in man will be like a bush in the desert. And he won't even see it when the prosperity comes. When the rain comes, it's going to go right around this particular bush. And even if it were able to survive the drought, if it were able to survive that, it's going to do so in a very lonely existence. Have you ever seen a bristlecone tree? They're the oldest trees in the world. We have, they have some in California. They have them in different parts of the world. And it's really interesting, just an aside to the, what I'm pointing out here, the oldest living ones are, one's called Methuselah. It's about 4,500 years old. If you know your biblical history, about 4,500 years ago, what happened? A flood. Anyway, so the bristlecone tree is that old, but it looks so insanely lonely out there. There's like nothing around. 
It's just this one spindly tree, and you could, I've shown pictures of these to my children. And uh, Ellie the other day, the one who was up here singing earlier, that makes her dad happy. Anyway, uh, that, I showed her a picture of that, and she just went, Dad, that's dead. I mean, it, it's got like four little sprouts. It looks terrible. It's lonely out there. And that's the picture that God paints for us here. The one who is trusting in mankind, he's going to be like this bush, isolated, desolate, useless for anyone else. Which is what's further pictured in the latter half of the verse when he says they will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, in a land of salt without inhabitant. Now, in Israel, when they speak of wilderness, so growing up as, you know, around here, when I heard wilderness, I always thought like a forest. But when I went over to Israel and they called something a wilderness, I mean, it's a desert with mountains. It, it's, it's worthless. No one wants to live there. No one can live there. It's like a natural uh, protective barrier for Jerusalem to have this because nobody wants to travel through that. There's no water. There's nothing there to sustain life. And that's the cursed person. That's what they can hope to have come upon them from God's hand. Verse 7 now shifts the narrative. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will t be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So the one who puts their hope, their trust in God here, notice, does not avoid the drought. The drought comes for both the bush and the tree. But the difference here is how one encounters that drought. The blessed one extends their roots, is able to sustain its life from the stream. So it's not going to panic in a metaphorical sense. A tree doesn't really panic, but you know. A tree will not panic when the drought comes because it knows it has a source for life. It knows that it can survive. It knows that the stream doesn't run dry and won't be anxious. How do I know if I'm trusting in God going back to verse 5? Do I allow the news of the day to move me to a spirit of anxiety? Does anxiousness take over? Do I find my comfort, my strength, my hope in the word, or do I find it in the news of the day? Instead, this blessed person, at drawing its sustenance from the living waters of God, will find that it doesn't need to be anxious when the drought comes. Nor will it cease to yield fruit. But here's the, the reality when you start thinking about this. Pasher, the guy I mentioned earlier, the nemesis of Jeremiah. If you're looking at, if you line up his life over here, and you line up Jeremiah's life over here, and you start to put them on a scale, and you start to consider who is it that's living this blessing from God, well, you're not going to pick Jeremiah. Pasher has all the power. He's the guy that puts Jeremiah in the stocks, 
in the middle of town so everyone can see him. Humiliates him. So there's something that has to be fleshed out here a little bit. See, the, it doesn't work out like the, the nice, neat little formula that you want. Jeremiah's life was not an easy life by any means. He had like almost no converts and decades of ministry. Almost no one would listen to him. Pasher has the crowds. He has the attention. He doesn't seem to be like a bush in the desert. Jeremiah does. The thing comes down to, the whole issue comes down to, is so many issues in life as, as a Christian. Whose praise do you want? Whose praise are you living for? Whose praise sustains you? See, Pasher was doing great until he wasn't. Until 605, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, and all the mocking that was thrown on Jeremiah comes crashing down like the walls of Jerusalem. See, he seemed to have everything settled and put in order. And remember, this is the superficial preacher. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is the guy who knew how to attract the crowd and get the, the hype going. Knew how to have the right performance and make people probably smile, just like superficial preachers today who are great at making people leave church with a smile and having not thought about the condition of their own soul. You always attract a better, bigger crowd when you're preaching that message than when you're the storm crow like Jeremiah. And yet that was Jeremiah's ministry and that was the ministry of nearly every prophet. The goal of a prophet was to pull sinners back, not to high five them while they descend into hell, not to make them feel good while they're dying but to let them know of the condition of their heart. Jeremiah's praise came from God. Now, you'll go through Jeremiah's letter and you'll find eight different times where the, there are these sections where they're called confessions of Jeremiah, where we get an inner look at his soul. We get a look at his deepest prayers and we find him despairing. Go back to chapter 15. Verse 18. I'll go back to verse 16 because I'd like to do that. He says here, your words were found and I ate them. This is Jeremiah. God's words came to him and he ate them and your, your words became for me joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Right there, he's singing in the choir. Right, right here, the band is building to crescendo. And, it's, and everybody's moving to tears at this point. Everything sounds awesome. This might have been, when he's thinking back of this moment, this might have been when Josiah was king of Israel. You remember him? There was never a greater revival in Israel's history than the coming of Josiah to the throne. This boy who becomes a man and becomes the king leads the nation back to God in a way that nobody else ever did. He forced the nation, and that's a key word, to come back to God. He destroyed the high places. He did all kinds of you know, prophetic utterances. He fulfilled those and things like that. This guy was awesome. And maybe that was the time when Jeremiah felt this. I don't know. 
Don't have a timeline built into the scripture here. But there he might easily have said that the words of God were a joy and the delight of his heart. It's easy to sing in the choir when everyone else is singing with you. It's easy when you got your posse with you to feel strong. Verse 17, I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult, because your hand was upon me and I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. Why? Because he saw the superficial nature of the worship of the people of Israel. Jeremiah was unsatisfied to see God's people satisfied with this plane of existence. He was bored of seeing people fat and happy. He was sick and tired of seeing them just comfortable and not truly near to God. He wasn't okay with that. He wanted to see the nation truly come to him, come to God. Not to be superficial. And that is Jeremiah. He says, that's where I was. It didn't matter if everything seemed to be right. He sat there. He didn't go out with the merrymakers. He didn't go out and have a good time. He didn't go to the state fair and, you know, the parties and kick it and all of that. Instead, he sat alone with the word of God. Maybe this is when the scroll was found of the Old Testament. Maybe he sits alone and and scribes it. And he was filled with indignation as he sees the superficial following of God. And probably nothing makes us more annoyed, more filled with indignation than that. To see some preacher who was actually there, some proclaimer of the gospel who was only there for the fame, that's disgusting. That's beyond hypocritical, it seems. So he's rightly filled with indignation. But then we see Jeremiah's inner response at this point. He feels that God has been mistreating him. Verse 18, why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable? Refusing to be healed. Once upon a time, I had a surgery on my leg and uh, they, they opened up a big long cut down my leg. They had to fuse an artery in a, or they had to, uh, an artery and a vein had fused together. They had to separate them and fix it and all this stuff. And yeah, Bob, it was gross. Anyway, they uh, had to fix that all up. And it was a big cut and all that stuff. And then I went home and for a week or so it was healing. But then all of a sudden it wasn't. And at the part of that wound wouldn't come back together. And you could look down, and this might be too much. But you could look down in, yeah, maybe I should quit. Anyway, it was ugly. And it felt like the wound wasn't going to heal. So I go to the doctor and they start giving me stuff and put another stitch in it and that kind of stuff. Um, It was a wound that was refusing to be healed. And I would much rather take a cut in my leg that won't heal up like that than some emotional wound any day that just you can't seem to recover from, that you can't seem to, to get back on your feet. That's where Jeremiah is. My wound is perpetual. It's incurable. It won't heal. Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? Do you see the contrast here to what we're looking at in chapter 17? 
He, he said the, the blessed one is the one who's the tree planted by the stream. Back here in chapter 15, he is in despair. He's saying, I thought I planted my tree by the river, but the river dried up and my heart is breaking. Can you imagine standing on the edge of this storm, if you're Jeremiah, knowing what's coming and knowing no one is listening? You're out there like a crazy person with a sign, you know, and you're trying to say the end is near and no one's listening. They think you're nuts. But you're Jeremiah the prophet. He knows what's coming. God didn't even let him get married and have children because God explained to him what was going to come. He said, your children will be like dung on the hills, man. Refuse, trash. His pain doesn't go away here. But we're seeing Jeremiah come out of this by the time we come to chapter 17. He's proclaiming rightly what's going on by the time you get to verse 8. And here's the thing. If all of that is true... That is, if the cursed is like the bush in the desert and the blessed are like the tree planted by water, then why aren't more people planted by the river? Why isn't that happening? Well, because they're looking for applause from the wrong source. And also because of verse 9. Here's the answer. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's more crooked It's more bent. It's more tangled up. It's more deceitful than all else. You are an expert at rationalizing your sinful behavior. You might not think you're an expert at many things. I'm not an expert at, I don't think, much of anything. Uh, Astrophysicist, not an expert there. Right? Nuclear fusion, not my thing. You know, I, I don't know, I'm not an expert in many things, but I guarantee you what I am an expert in is rationalizing and justifying my sinful behavior. And so are you. You're a pro. An absolute pro at it. Why? Because the heart is desperately sick, as it says here. There is that incurable, same word here. Incurable. The heart here isn't just your emotions. They used heart in the Old Testament sense, they used it in meaning the inner person, which includes your rationalization process, reasoning. It's the inner throne room of the person. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it will take you down any number of roads possible if, it will, if you can somehow avoid dealing with the real problem of your soul. This is the battle we face in evangelism. This is why we pray. Because it must be the word of God to cut through all of that nonsense. To get into the true heart of the person. To cut through all that justification process and that ability to squirm out around the truth. It's desperately sick. The the big memo to take away from that verse, you can't trust yourself. You can trust God. 
You cannot trust yourself. You have to get used to that in the Christian life. This is, I just talked the other day with the youth group in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Don't think you're the wise guy. Forsake that. Recognize your limitations. Recognize you're just one person in a sea of billions. You're not that special. You're not that important. You're not that much smarter than everybody else. Forsake trusting yourself. Trust God, your creator. He says this, in summing that up, knowing that your heart can't be trusted, knowing that it's more deceitful than all else, as Spurgeon said, the problem with investigating your own heart is that you go into it and you find chambers within chambers. You go in one room and you think, oh, I figured it out. And then you open up the next door and you're like, dang it. I missed it completely. I thought I knew my motivation, but I don't really know it. I thought I knew what was going on, but I don't. So his response is the rhetorical question, who can understand it? Who can truly understand the human mind and heart? Who can sort all that out? Well, we have many supposed experts in our world today that seem to think they can sort it out, and I doubt them severely. I think there's only one who can know it, and that is the answer from verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now that's a terrifying reality if you're understanding scripture, right? I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. This is like the the guy who melts down the gold to get out all the impurities, to, to remove all the filth and to get just that which is pure and right in the end. God is the one testing all of that, searching through all of that, and he will do so to what end? To give to each man according to his ways. He will deal with us as we deserve, according to the results of his deeds. Then he gives us an interesting illustration in verse 11. He says, as a partridge that hatches eggs, which has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, he will forsake him. It will forsake him, that wealth. And in the end, he will be a fool. How does this connect to the previous section? That's all connecting back thus far to this cursed person. They seem to have things together. But like a bird that were to gather up a bunch of eggs and hatch them and those little eggs those are now little birds and now they realize this isn't actually my mom so what do they do they fly away see one of the ways in which they were trusting in their own strength the kings of israel in particular was by gaining their wealth unjustly israel was breaking nearly every one of the 613 commandments god had given them He'd given them so many things that they were supposed to listen to. You're not even supposed to charge a fellow countryman interest and all these other things and and following the Sabbath and all that. They didn't do any of it. They were gaining their wealth unjustly. And one of the ways, chief ways, that is brought up in Jeremiah, they were still continuing to work on the Sabbath to continue to try to make more money. They were not dedicating to God that which is God's, but were stealing it for themselves. And that wealth will... Leave them. What's the theme through all of this? The theme throughout this is the the issue, the, the looking for that which is permanent. Where is the solid 
ground. Where is that solid ground in a world of sinking sand? He now transitions to his crescendo and he says, A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. The fool has looked for his sanctuary in gold. The fool has looked for his strength in man, in guns, in modern vernacular. In military might, in nukes, or some other nonsense. The cursed person will find himself alone, but Jeremiah recognizes a reality beyond this, and this is what sustains him. This is why he comes out of the quagmire he was in in chapter 15 and into this place now because he shifted his eyes from the plane of this world to the eternal throne. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. As Revelation 4 says, verse 2, a throne was standing in heaven. And the one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne and an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were the 24 thrones. Upon those thrones I saw the 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature was like a calf. And the third creature like the face of that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. In the day and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, our Jesus enthroned, To him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. See, I get so ridiculously fixated on this temporary world. And I know better. I get so fixated on an earthly throne of of my own kingdom that's in my own eyes that I forget the majesty on high. I get caught up in the news I get caught up in the stock market. I get caught up in money and concerns and on and on it goes and you do too. And I must return day by day as I face the grim realities that I spoke of in the beginning. Instead of running from those, instead of acting like they don't exist, I face that, I look at that so that it makes me despair of this world and this people and makes me look to God who reigns forever and ever. This is my reality. This is what I will dwell in eternally. I think of these 24 elders clothed in white 
wearing golden crowns and then falling before God Almighty, worshiping him. And how, how I long to be one of those. Don't you? Jeremiah had moved his gaze from where he was. He shifted from the shifting sands of this world to the permanence of the throne eternal. And he says in response, O Lord, the hope of Israel. If you recall, I started and got to the point where I was saying there is no hope in man. We must arrive there. We must dwell there long enough to see that. O Lord, the hope of Israel. See, Jeremiah still had some hope. But it had nothing to do with the people hanging out around him. His hope was fixed in God. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away will be written down in the earth, meaning that their names will be written in the dust that will be wiped away, impermanent, temporary, because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. I don't know what valleys you've gone through. I don't know how hard your life has been. I don't know what you're in now. But I know the, the absolute tendency within us, the, the axiomatic principle within us to move to despair, to depression, to hopelessness. You must get your eyes off of that and on the throne. Jeremiah was certainly there. As I said, he has eight different confessions where, man, he sounds desperate. He sounds lost on the trail. But Jeremiah, in one of his confessions, which is found in verse 14, says this. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. Heal me, O Lord, and I'll be healed. I know that my wound that seemed incurable can only be cured by one. Nothing else in this life is able to do it. Nothing can even come close to making that pain go away. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. That is a prayer of faith. I believe you for that. Save me and I will be saved, as Jesus says, indeed, fully, not superficially. Not this teaching of pasture that sounds so good that makes me feel good for a moment, like watching a funny movie and when I walk out, I'm no different. Not that garbage. Not that temporary flare-up. Not the hype of a good concert. But I will be saved indeed for you are my praise. Come out of that depression. Come out of that ugliness that you found yourself in by fixing your eyes on God Almighty and his throne, for he reigns. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for simply sharing your word with us. I thank you for making Jeremiah steadfast even though he wavered, Father, you kept him, just like you do with us. 
Father, we know you will not let go of your elect. You will not let us descend utterly into nonsense. But Lord, you love us too much to allow us to live superficially. Lord, you call us to glorify you with our lives. Lord, may we do that. May we seek that. May we fix our eyes completely on the hope to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may that day be today. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.